Hi everyone, this is Corina. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Nani Janssen Reventlow, human rights lawyer and keynote speaker at the Anthropology and Technology Conference happening online on the 9th and 12th of October 2020. We are talking to Nani about digitalization, individual rights and freedoms and ways to sustain a just and inclusive society. Nani speaks from the perspective of law and human rights, a framework she believes helps empower individuals in the age of hyper-digitalization. We asked Nani what makes Google different from a public space. What are the threats but also the opportunities of the technological development brought about by COVID-19? We discussed the position of a consumer in the online space and, as Nani puts it, the underestimated power that we hold but often need to actively resume. Nani speaks to her field of digital rights decolonization and shares insights of the challenges that underline it. Lastly, she shares her excitement about the digital format of this year's Anthropology and Technology Conference as it enhances its accessibility. We hope you enjoy it. Hi friends, we are here today with Nani Janssen-Ravenko, human rights lawyer and director of the Digital Freedom Fund and also the keynote speaker at the Anthropology and Technology uh, Conference happening in uh, October. Hi, Nani. Hi, Karina. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to, to have you with us today. And um, before diving into the kind of content of your, of your work, I'd, I'd love to ask you to tell me and our listeners a little bit more about your career trajectory. How have you come to, to do the work that you do right now? Um. I always, uh, like I said, it, I, I just, uh, my career to a large extent uh, is, a, is a series of happy coincidences uh, in which I was able to pursue things that, that interested me, um, and uh, some of which actually came on my, my path by, by chance. I became interested in human rights in law school, um, and like many other young lawyers, I tried to kind of directly dive into uh, human rights work, but was unsuccessful. <laughs> uh, so I started uh, training at a law firm uh, initially and tried to do human rights work uh, outside of that, so alongside my work there. Uh, and then was lucky enough uh, after my training had completed to um, work for an NGO that uh, is called the Media Legal Defense Initiative, uh, where I got to work on defending journalists and uh, independent uh, bloggers and other news outlets um, that got into legal trouble because of their work. And that was a worldwide practice, which was uh, super fascinating and really got me going in uh, strategic litigation also. Um, at some point, I wanted to broaden my scope um, and wanted to work on a broader area of, of human rights than just freedom of expression. And ended up uh, doing a fellowship at the Berkman Klein Center uh, at Harvard uh, University, where I worked on a project on strategic litigation on keeping the internet open and free. And during my period there, the opportunity to set up the Digital Freedom Fund uh, came along. And uh, that was actually a wonderful opportunity to work on a broad scope of human rights uh, in a context that's very relevant at the moment, uh, the digital context. Um, and that is uh, what I've been working on since 2017. Oh. 
Nice. Uh, I find I find so fascinating this kind of intersection uh, space that you that you work with. You know, like these topics of digital rights, data protection, freedom of expression. I, I and I wonder, like, like, can you trace back, like, when you became interested in these topics, and and how did they start to um, to gain personal importance for you? Um, well, it, it became it. Well, <laughs> it started uh, basically as a as an academic exercise for me, which was mm-hmm. in school, because I was very much interested in public international law, because um, I found it a fascinating area where you have um, kind of the interaction between state power, international relations, mm-hmm. economics, and then also placing individual rights into that. Um, so that was really fascinating to me as, as more or less an intellectual exercise when I was still a student. Um, but later, as I, as I started working, and um, I actually became more and more interested in how you can use the law as a framework to enforce rights and freedoms. Like, how can you change things? How can you right wrongs? Um, and also, further diving into strategic litigation, which became really um, a topic of interest for me, is like, how can you uh, leverage the writing of an individual wrong to address something at a systemic level? How can you be really strategic in, in, in what you bring forward to the courts? Mm. Um, so, yeah, this is something that kind of developed further as I got more of an opportunity to work with this. Um, and in particular, when I was working on uh, on the freedom of expression work that I did at, at MLDI. And, uh, yeah, got the opportunity to now uh, apply that in a, in a different space, in a different context. Yeah. Nice. Here on the on the podcast, we're really kind of fascinated with these topics of uh, power and 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 relationships. And I, I'm I'm particularly curious with the topic that you work on the kind of the conflating relationship between individuals, uh, companies, and and governments on on this topic of um, on the topics that you work on. And kind of to contextualize a little bit my. Um, my question: the, the speed with which these topics are being developed on a on a commercial level um, does not seem to ma- match the speed with which we build regulations around the same topics. Mm-hmm. And and the second thing that I'm interested in is that so many of those um, digital products or digital uh, infrastructures that are being developed are being developed not as public goods or public infrastructure, but as commercial infrastructures. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I wonder how do you see that? From your perspective, that's a very <laughs> that's a very interesting question. Um, to start with, the question about about regulation and the speed of development, um, that's actually a very interesting topic to think about um, because, well, and actually, I guess that kind of like shows very much how those power structures work out in practice. Um, because quite often there is the call for like more regulation because there is so much new technology. We need to set up new rules, etc. Um, and every time you put together a new set of rules, a new set of regulations, there is a new opportunity to kind of like, you know, literally set the standards, right? And that's not always to the benefit of, of you and me, um, if I can put it that way. Um, I, as a human rights lawyer, um, often kind of like make the point that we actually have a wonderful framework in principle to kind of refer back to, which is the human rights framework, and that um, we have wonderful institutions, uh, courts and judges that are used to applying existing regulation to new developments, right? Uh, And uh, that works in two different ways. One is that uh, you... um, 
you test whether or not the norms that you have um, are clear enough for the new context, and that can also point the way for what actual further regulation, regulation you might need. Um, but it also uh, gives an opportunity to actually show that a lot of the norms that we have actually are pretty good in safeguarding uh, the human rights and the freedoms that we have. So uh, rather than over-regulating, um, uh, you, you should first try by uh, starting to test the existing frameworks that you have. Mm. Um, so that's one, <laughs> one point I, I, I always try to make, um, because there's always a risk of moving things backwards with mm -hmm. new regulation and not necessarily um, forwards in the, in, in the right direction. Um, however, um, there's uh, another kind of interesting conversation that's pr pretty much uh, focused at the moment around the issue of AI um, mm -hmm. regulation, and that's the debate of... Um, ethics as a form of regulation, in particular there where you look at, at a situation where indeed companies are developing the main products that are being used in that space, the main technology that is being mm. out is produced by, by private companies uh, who, you know, as entities that have uh, a profit uh, interest as their bottom line, uh, yeah. are mostly uh, interested in having major like maximum freedom of movement, right? And, mm. and restrictions mm. and the possibility of developing what they can sell basically um, and yeah this is indeed like again like a conversation where I always try to push back like we have to look at the human rights framework because those are clear standards those are enforceable standards and those are the ones that we should be applying uh, in that space now the question there always is like what is the interest of governments to actually make that happen and there uh, you enter a really difficult area in the sense that a lot of governments actually benefit from the development of some of the potentially human rights infringing uh, products that um, uh, private companies are developing. Um, governments might want to buy that. Uh, they might want to use it. They might want to roll it out in, their, um, in, in the way that they um, administer their public functions. Um, so there's not always an incentive for government to uh, take a position that is as protective of our mm. rights and freedoms as, as we would want. Mm. How does it work, and, and bear with me because maybe it's, it's, it's not a very developed question, but how does it work when you have services like, um, let's say, Google or YouTube or Facebook that are literally free, um, so there's no transaction happening between you as a, as a consumer and them, but but they have complete power over what, what how they design the product to maximize the, the the data usage that they sell then for advertisement and to fund the, the development of that product. So yeah, I guess I mean you 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 in a way you were answering the question already. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps there's no visible transaction, but yeah. there is a transaction. There is yeah. you consenting to terms and conditions that allow them to collect certain data on you and uh, to monetize that uh, subsequently. Um, but I think more than this, um, it, it, it does something to the product itself, right? Because that, that product doesn't necessarily uh, ensure you an objective flow of information or an, an objective performance because that performance is kind of like guided by the interests of those people that buy the data, like for example, when I search something on Google, it's not like a public library, like the, the type of information that I get back are driven by um, these other interests that sit behind. And I would say it's the same with YouTube when you have the, the recommended list of next videos or 
So what I'm trying to say is that even the way you use the product does not necessarily guarantee that the information that you're getting is uh, in accordance to what they say that they're offering you. I'm not sure if I'm no, <laughs> expressing no, it correctly. You're, 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 um, you're touching upon the idea of, of kind of creating information bubbles, right? So mm. to some extent, like the algorithms are are you know, purportedly there to make your user experience more pleasant, that you get content that you are likely to be interested in. Uh, so, you know, you don't have to spend forever finding a video that you will enjoy watching. But on the other hand, it also filters out um, uh, information that might actually be very useful for you to have because it's an opposing view or it's a different exactly. view. Exactly, yeah. Something actually broaden your horizons. And... Um, that is that is one thing in kind of like a leisurely context in which you are just like looking mm. at music videos. Mm. Uh, it becomes more nefarious when you look at situations of uh, elections, for example, etc. Mm. And uh, that the information stream that you're accessing is can be manipulated, um, and sometimes also without you actually having kind of like chosen to be manipulated, mm. <laughs> if I could mm. put it that way. Um, that is very dangerous because it has a huge impact uh, on our democracy and our, our ability to kind of like freely exercise choice. Um, mm. Yeah. Is there any, like I've always wondered what, 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 what signifies a product or a service? What comes the moment where it becomes part of the public good and, and less as a commercial product? Because I think what also regulates normally in capitalism commercial products is the fact that you don't have monopoly, that mm -hmm. you have different companies that kind of hold each other accountable, that there's an equal playing field. I would say when, when a company becomes actually synonym with the information infrastructure that you use on a daily level, like Google, for example, what would make Google, let's say, different from uh, the streets that we are um, walking with with our cars, that it's actually a public good instead of a commercial product? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, no, this is exactly the, 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 the conundrum of our times, right? Um, mm. Our public square uh, is in the hand of private entities, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Google, yeah. where, we, where we exchange information and ideas. Um, and this is a problem that we are, we are yet, like, how, how should that be regulated and, and where does the ultimate responsibility lie? Yeah. Okay, I love this topic. I could spend forever talking about it, but I want to move um, forward and, and kind of um, curious to ask you uh, a little bit, anchoring it in the moment of our days and COVID-19, and particularly this kind of acceleration of digitalization that is happening and the altered approach towards data extraction that increases freedom of governments and companies to access personal data. How have you seen that uh, affecting your work? Or have you seen it affecting your work in any way? Does it bring new challenges or any other sort of opportunities maybe that you could speak to? Yeah, I think that the, the COVID-19 situation um, brings both challenges and opportunities uh, with it. In the challenges area, health protection is like one of the best excuses uh, mm -hmm. to, as a government or as a technology company to justify um, you know, rolling out human rights infringing technology, right? It's like... Mm. It's, compelling argument it's for your it's for your own good it's for the good of society it's protecting your health you know your life mm -hmm. so trust us and install this app and let us track you wherever you go yeah um, so and and you it was very interesting actually in the early days uh, of the lockdown um, during the pandemic to kind of also like see 
some of the tech companies actually explicitly say, like, see, you should trust us. You know, we can we can solve this problem. And for governments who are dealing with an unprecedented situation, it's very seductive to kind of like buy into techno solutionism, right? Then and kind of think, mm-hmm. okay, we can solve this through technology. Um, so that is definitely um, a, a challenge. Um, as regards like the the threats to to our human rights in the digital sphere, what we've seen is not so much new challenges, but an exacerbation of existing ones. Um, so you just mentioned already like data protection and privacy issues, um, but there was also a huge impact on the free flow of information with mm-hmm. all sorts of regulations against fake news about the virus, etc. Uh, and also in the, the area of AI, uh, technology and human rights, basically. The one thing that's really that is kind of uh, an opportunity in all of this is the fact that it made people much more aware of how technology is only present in our lives. Mm. For one, through like all the talk about Corona apps and, and and immunity passports and all sorts of other solutions, but also because a lot of us were forced to need to kind of like work from home and we're reliant on technology and. You, you saw all the, um, the flare-up about whether or not Zoom was privacy-friendly or not, which everyone mm. was saying. And there was just a lot more attention to those issues. And I think that that really helped spark awareness of like how big a role technology mm. plays in our lives and how our lives are moving more and more in the digital sphere in, in, in every single respect. Um, another opportunity is the fact that this was something that crossed borders, uh, of not only did the, um, uh, did the virus cross borders, but also the types of solutions that were being looked at to uh, combat it. You, so you see governments um, copying uh, measures from each other to combat the pandemic. Uh, one adopts a, a, a tracing app, the other also wants an immunity passport, the next one wants an even better symptom checker, etc. Uh, and that offers possibilities to explore how you can work on these issues transnationally. Like how can you work on issues in different across different jurisdictions and leverage any wins that you can get to protect our human rights in this context and uh, use them in another one to, to basically increase the situation or kind of like improve the situation uh, for everyone. It makes me think um, also around the topic of how this type of apps and these technologies reproduce certain system of inequality. And they're also... I, I, I'm very poorly phrasing this question, but bear with me. Like uh, I, I recently read this article that talked about the tracing apps of COVID that were um, and the way they were developed to work very well with recognition of white faces or with recognition of of, of male uh, type of uh, signifiers, which again shows um, something about the technology space and how they built and from what perspective they built particular artificial intelligence. Um, I wonder if you see that also uh, as a kind of a, of a as a kind of connecting point to what you were mentioning earlier. Um, I see this as an issue that has been <laughs> very very present uh, within this in the digital rights field yeah. uh, from the very beginning. Um, we obviously li- live in uh, in a society that has certain power structures. Uh, those power structures are being uh, replicated um, mm-hmm. in the technology that we build uh, for various reasons. It has to do with the people who design the technology. It has to do uh, with uh, the way that we think about technology uh, technology design also. Like we think mm-hmm. of it 
much as an as an engineering task rather than thinking of more multidisciplinary teams. Mm-hmm. There's also a place for, for example, social scientists, etc. And then that workforce is, is predominantly white, predominantly male. Their worldviews are kind of like ingrained in the design. Mm-hmm. And, and this has a, a hugely negative impact on, on groups that are marginalized in the power structures that we have in society. Mm-hmm. And technology kind of exacerbates that even further. It amplifies it. Um, so this is a, this is a huge problem that we've, that we've always had. Um, mm-hmm. And, in, in my view, it also is a problem that um, isn't addressed sufficiently yet. Uh, and I think that that's to a large extent also because the, the watchdog that we have, so the digital rights organizations mm-hmm. that are supposed to safeguard our human rights in the digital sphere, also do not sufficiently replicate uh, or reflect sorry, um, uh, the way that our societies are composed. Um, if you look, um, well, if I look around me, like at uh, the average digital rights gathering or these days Zoom meeting, because you will see everyone, uh, you'll see everyone on screen. Screen, um, it's um, it's predominantly white again, and uh, overall, it's a it's a fairly privileged group of people, um, and that means that we have a watchdog that has inevitable blind spots. Uh, particularly in those areas where um, uh, racial justice, social justice, and technology um, come together. And this is something that, you know, we've been very aware of uh, for a while now, and um, we, we're, we're, trying to, um, we're trying to work on <laughs> also, because it's, yeah, it's just not right, and it, um, that's for one, <laughs> this is a moral issue there. Uh, but also, uh, it doesn't lead to the best outcomes for all of us as a society. So, mm. I wonder, in in your work, like what makes the type of work that you do difficult? What what makes it challenging? What what type of obstacles do you find? It could be structural uh, obstacles, but it just could be other worldviews or other points of view. So I think what we just talked about, the the, the replication of societies inequalities mm-hmm. in technology is, is one of the biggest things and also the composition of the of the field that is supposed to address these issues. Um, I think another uh, another issue is actually the fact that a lot of people still shy away from technology. They they hear the word technology or they hear the phrase digital rights and they're like, oh it's complicated, uh, has nothing to do with me, like, let me just not, not get involved. Mm. And, um, and that is something that's actually quite dangerous um, in the sense that these developments are ongoing and they're moving at very rapid speed, as you, as you also mentioned earlier. Um, and it is something that we all kind of like really have to have our eyes open and we have to be on guard on what is happening. Um, I once uh, said that I feared that people were a little bit asleep at the wheel as to what was happening in a sense that people seem to be very willing to kind of give up some of the, the freedoms and the liberties that they have, that they gained, you know, in the offline world when it comes to an, on, uh, an online setting, when it comes to the digital setting, um, accepting terms and conditions, giving their data away to whoever, uh, without thinking of the implications that that could bring with it um, longer term. Um, 
and not really questioning what is the person who is selling <laughs> this to me basically getting getting out of it. Uh, and uh, there are not enough critical questions that are being asked. And this is one of the reasons why I'm actually very encouraged by the, the discussions that we're seeing at the moment when governments are trying to roll out Corona apps, uh, mm. other tracing technology, uh, etc., um, that there actually are critical questions being asked and people are finally kind of like wondering what is this actually going to do for me? Uh, how can you prove to me that this is actually going to make a difference, that this is yeah. going to make things better? Um, so that is, yeah, to kind of connect that to our earlier conversation, that's, a, that's an encouraging thing. Yeah, I find it uh, honestly, personally, very difficult because the, as a consumer of products like Google or Facebook or Twitter, there's no alternative. So even when you go down the rabbit hole of trying to read their terms of conditions to click or not click on things, it doesn't seem like like I personally have any other option than just opting out of the product. So yeah. that the minimal level of, of privacy, uh, there, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't seem to exist. And, and even I, I feel as a consumer, even I take the time, like hours to scroll to these forms and read because they're not making, they're making other things very easy. Mm-hmm. But that part, it's not easy at all. Yeah. But even if you take the time and you commit to it, my personal conclusion as a consumer has been, my my only choice is to opt out, and then that's not even a choice when my whole network and the fabric of my life is embedded with this product. So you're very right, and that an, another important point is there: you have no bargaining power. Really, yeah, yeah, right? exactly. So yeah. even if you read all the terms and conditions, and you know, there fortunately there are projects that try to make terms and conditions like understandable in normal human language because they're often way too long and way too technical. Um, but you have no way to negotiate an alternative. No. Um, and that is, yeah, that is a really big problem, I agree. Yeah, right, because even when you put in the work, like at the end, the only option is to get out. And um, yeah. yeah, I just know that there's, there's, there's also um, consumers kind of underestimate the power that they, that they do have um, through their wallets, right? And I think quite often also because we are, we are in situations where we're making these decisions on an individual basis, like the, um, um, the power that we might actually have as a, as a group and uh, as a mass uh, is, is often not visible. Yeah. But, it, but it is there, and it's really wonderful also now that with like, uh, new tools like the, like the GDPR, mm-hmm. it's possible actually to unite and to kind of undertake mass actions um, or, or class actions, however you want to uh, classify it. To, to challenge things such as unfair terms and conditions. Um, so hopefully that will, will spark not only change, but also some, some further thinking of people and also maybe taking more action uh, when they see something that they don't like. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's a good one. I really like this kind of, it makes me think about this, this diffuseness that exists in terms of collective responsibility. And, and, and then with technology, it's, it's not that easy to access that uh, uh, power of the collective. But still, when you have a captive market with one player and no other options to go, it's still somehow, for me, it, it, it feels like fundamentally uh, unfair yes. to even permit this type of um, uh, situations to, to exist un, un, unregulated in that way. So without wanting to go into like a, a boring uh, law, law yeah. side. <laughs> but but um, I mean... People are exploring how to use, for example, competition law or antitrust uh, 
regulations to curtail the power of these tech giants, right? Yeah. Because this idea that they they completely dominate the market. Uh, wh- where is your choice? And also, yeah. you know, how can you foster a market in which actually new players can can enter into it and offer alternative services yeah. and yeah. perhaps you know other levels of privacy um, and data protection that you would prefer um, yeah. as a customer. Yeah, I, I love this conversation. But um, let me move into my, my next question, which is one of my favorite topics, uh, um, multidisciplinarity and working with social scientists. Mm-hmm. Have you worked with social scientists? Uh, and what, if yes, uh, what, what have you thought of that? And if not, uh, how do you see social science as, uh, as a potential um, collaborator for some of the work that you do? Well, we, um, we've engaged with social scientists actually um, mainly in the context of uh, um, our decolonizing projects. Um, so we're, we're trying to figure out uh, how we can make sure that the power structures in the digital rights field change um, to make sure that it better reflects uh, our society, that uh, we can better safeguard digital rights for all. Um, so this has been fascinating. We've, we've spoken to a number of, of, of um Wonderfully, people who were like way too smart for me uh, over the past months uh, to discuss these issues and kind of like trying to um, get to a vision of what a decolonized digital rights field uh, looks like. Uh, and that has been super elucidating. Um, another area in which uh, I think social scientists can play and should play like structurally a really big part is actually in this design process of technology. Mm-hmm. Um, there's often a call for human rights impact assessments, right? Uh, so when you de- design new technology that you should really first consider how this is going to have an impact on, on human rights if you were to roll that out. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the idea that, that, I, that I referred to about like having only engineers basically involved in designing technology, it just makes no sense because it's... Uh, it is implemented, uh, it is used in the context of our societies. So it has to, it has to really come from multidisciplinary teams that kind of, kind of set properly what, what the impact is of, of, uh, of the products that are being developed. Um, so those are two areas in which, uh, yeah, I, I have come across social scientists and, and, and think that they could play a, a, an, an important role. Nice. And, um, Bringing it back now to the anthropology and technology conference that you will be um, you will be the keynote speaker of, can you tell me a little bit more about uh, first your motivation of joining of conference and then how how do you approach this kind of like concept of keynoting, like well, <laughs> without kind of like uh, talking about what you will be keynoting on, but like how do you how do you how do you approach it? Um, so first of all, motivated to join the conference uh, is. I very much believe in kind of breaking through mm. disciplinary silos. I think we all benefit from kind of looking at the world through a different lens than we're, than we're used to. Um, I've just seen what, what great results you can get from mm-hmm. that cross-pollination of like ideas and, and so on. So this, this is what makes me like super interested. And I'm, I'm always very happy when anybody is willing to listen to a human rights lawyer talk about anything. So. <laughs> I look forward to, 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 to having uh, yeah, many interesting conversations uh, during the conference. Um, how do I approach the, the idea of keynoting? 
Um, do you mean from a thematic issue or from a, like a practically or? Yeah, exactly from a thematic uh, issues because I'm thinking like you are the keynote, so you kind of give the something to the group, like in sense of a direction. And you are a human rights uh, lawyer talking to a group of anthropologists and technologists, social scientists, and so. I'm just curious of your process of like, how do you make a choice on what do you want to land the lens on at the start of this conference yeah, from so, your perspective? So I just mentioned that I thought that uh, social scientists can play a really important role in both mm -hmm. like decolonizing work yeah. that we're doing and also um, in multidisciplinary teams to kind of like address some of the problems that we have with technology. So um, I thought that that would be a good area to, to look at, uh, at this crossover uh, that we have between like a human rights frame and a social science frame. Um, and um, the conference has uh, three thematic focus areas, right? Uh, health tech, mm -hmm. fintech and smart cities. Um, so uh, what I then thought was what I would do is kind of like illustrate some of the issues through those three thematic issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, look a little bit at the, the causes um, that are for that, and then kind of talk a little bit about the, the types of solutions that are there, which not only includes, indeed, like this idea of multidisciplinary uh, work, uh, but also a decolonizing process, not only for the tech industry, but also for the field um, of, of, of human rights activists that, that, that work in this area. So I'm hoping to spark further conversation, which is, which is, in the end, the one thing that you would hope for, right, is that you... Yeah. You give a talk and that there's that there's more talk. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious, maybe I can ask, when you talk about the concept of decolonization, do you approach the product of technology or also the production of technology? Uh, both. Oh. Both, yeah. That would be both. Uh, I mean, the, the two examples that you give are ones that are kind of outside the, the remit of the organization that I run because we, we focus on supporting the digital rights field in Europe. So that is what we can, that is what we can focus on. Um, but we use the terminology rather than diversity and inclusion or diversity, equity and inclusion, because we really think that it's about tackling the, the, the structural issues mm. that like make the field the way it is and that make this area operate the way yeah. that it does. So, so you would be talking, for example, of how the cheap, cheaper, huh? the, like the, the labor that comes with building code, with building the product of technology is the one that is also located in the poorest areas of the world. Like I, I, I once watched this really beautiful talk that talked about this invisible costs of, of technology production and how unequal that technology production actually is. Because we, we think it's, uh, because there's a lot of, labor that sits behind the production of technology that is invisible, but that is structurally incredibly unequal. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not, I'm not sure if you're going to touch on that too. I, I find it as an area extremely fascinating because until that talk, I've never thought about that. For me, decolonization of technology always had to do well uh, about the, the coders and the developers that are mostly white and mostly male and mostly upper middle class and the way they embed that into the product and the way the product is accessed or not by in a fair way by people. But I never thought about this kind of this other layer of colonization of technology production. There are very few actual uh, colonies that still exist in the world. Unfortunately, there still are, but uh, we're far, far removed from having left that legacy behind us. And it creates yeah. every part of our society. Um, and it's a it's going to be. <laughs> 
it's a it's a long road, right? Uh, to get anywhere near liberating ourselves from that. But um, yeah, it's important to start the work and to start the work within the sphere of influence that you have. Yeah, and hopefully like help that trigger similar work in other yes. areas. Nice, uh, Nani. Before we close this uh, this talk out, I wanted to ask if you if you have any other thoughts or or final words that you would give those that are considering to come to the conference or that are already coming. I would encourage everyone to join. I am really thrilled that it's a, a fully virtual uh, conference, which uh, makes it a lot more accessible for everyone. And I think that's another thing actually to point out that I hope that we'll learn from from this period of lockdown, etc., is to kind of like think differently about participation and making things accessible uh, for everyone. In order to make that like a successful experiment, we all have to show up. <laughs> uh, so I hope to see uh, uh, many new uh, and old friends. And uh, I really look forward to some yeah, mind-broadening conversations and uh, particularly some really tough questions for, for this human rights lawyer who, ah. who looks at the world through a very specific lens. So Thank you, Nani. It was a pleasure talking to you. It was very lovely to talk to you too. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.